competition this morning. I'd like make a suggestion. I just, um, I just wonder if we could sing together uh, without, doesn't need to have any accompaniment. Just uh, the chorus of that song, Great is the Darkness, where we sing, Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit on us today, whatever the words are. So maybe just as a prayer before we kind of look at God's word together and listen to what he's got to say to us, maybe we could just sing that, just simply a simple prayer, very profound and ancient prayer together. So let's sing. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit on us. Today and again, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Pour out your spirit on us today. Amen. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2. When I went to Sunday school when I was young... And uh, in truth, most of my Bible knowledge comes from going to Sunday school, in case any of you should think otherwise. Um, Probably exactly the same. I don't know if anything has changed, actually. But it seemed to me that we um, covered Paul's missionary journeys, like, all the time. I think it was Scripture Union, and I'm sure that they came up more than anything else in the Bible. I mean, I seem to have learned some of the stories, you know, like Daniel in the lion's den and David and Goliath and things. But we did do Paul's missionary journeys an awful lot. And at the end of my, you know, five, six years in Sunday school, I still was as confused by Paul's missionary journeys as ever I was at the beginning. I know there were three, but I've got no idea which one was which and which places he went to in any one journey and how they related to each other. I still was completely confused. And so when we're talking about Thessalonians, which is about the church in Thessalonica, which was one of the places where Paul went on his missionary journeys, I'm still thinking to myself, which one was that? Who else is feeling like that? Excellent. That makes me feel better. So Paul went to Thessalonica. It says that in Acts 17. And uh, he wasn't there for very long at all. Then he went to a place called Berea, And it says in Acts 17 that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. I remembered that again this morning. However, there is no letter to the Bereans, although it's a lot easier to say than the Thessalonians. And then after that, he went to Athens. And that's where we get the story about Paul speaking on the Areopagus on Mars Hill, speaking to many who had never heard anything about Jesus, didn't have a Jewish background at all. Then he goes from Athens to Corinth, 
and writes some more letters. Actually, he doesn't write them in Corinth. But he goes to Corinth and deals with the church there, which is hugely um, difficult. So here we are. Paul, Silas, and Timothy go to Thessalonica. They share the gospel there. Many Jews and Gentiles believe, and we have this very baby, embryonic church in Thessalonica. But very, very quickly, they faced serious, serious persecution and violent danger from the Jewish community. And and Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, are forced to leave because it's so dangerous. One of the leaders there, called Jason, was actually put into prison Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea, but Paul then went on to Athens and to Corinth. You see, the thing is that he wasn't there for very long at all. He was there for three Sundays in our terminology, just for three weeks. And yet, the impact that he had was eternal. You know, sometimes we think, oh, well, that didn't last for very long. I didn't do that for very long. I wasn't there for very long And so we dismiss it, but we never know what kind of impact something can have for the future. Maybe you went on a mission team sometime, someplace. Maybe you've had a profound conversation with a person and you've never seen them ever again. Maybe you've gone to be a part of the church somewhere and it hasn't been for a very long time for all manner of different reasons, but you never know what kind of impact that you've had because the impact that Paul had in those three weeks was eternal. And the love that he had for them was truly authentic. This wasn't just a, oh, here's the next stop on the map in my missionary journey, and it was the same as everyone else. He clearly had a deep and authentic love for them. And we sense that through the book, the letters of Thessalonians, and especially in this passage, which we're going to look at this morning. So please have it open in front of you. It said that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they checked out everything Paul was saying. So if you want to be noble this morning, that is the way to do it. So he starts off and he says, brothers and sisters... Brothers and sisters, and there's that sense right from the beginning of relationship and of family. You know, we don't do this particularly in the UK. I think some churches maybe do, but it's not conventional. But when we found ourselves in Central and South America and went to church there, everyone is called brother and sister. That is true across Africa as well and probably other places. That When you are in the family of God, you are called brother or sister. Now, that's really helpful when you can't remember people's names. <laughs> but it also says something. Now, I'm not saying that we should do that, probably feel a bit odd. But there's something, isn't there? Before you're in the family of God, you're not a brother and sister. But when you're in the family of God, you are. You are family. And this morning, we meet as family here. We meet as family across Skipton. We meet as family across the world. That's why there is no persecuted church. There's just the part of the church that's suffering because it's our family. And that's how we need to understand it. Paul has that relationship with them even after a short time. There's this real depth of connection. And he says, doesn't he, Excuse me, swallowing. When we were torn away from you for such a short time. You know, in the message, that word there is orphaned. And it talks about that sudden separation of a child from its parent. Now, 
across our news recently, we have seen those scenes, haven't we? The refugees across the American border from Mexico torn away from their parents. And we watch with horror the grief and trauma that occurs. That's the same word that Paul is using here. He said, I came to this city to plant the gospel, to build a church. And within three weeks, I was ripped away from you. It was a traumatic experience. I feel this great sense of loss that I couldn't be with you. And part of that, of course, is the love that he senses for them. And in verse 17, he says, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. He didn't think, oh, well, never mind. I'm moving on to Berea now. It's fine. There was within him this desperation, this intense longing built brought out of relationship to see them again. Now, I don't know what you think about Paul. People quite often go, oh, well, I prefer the Gospels, or I, I prefer the Old Testament stories. And, and we have this kind of view of Paul that he is like the doctrine man, the one who wrote Romans, and that's all about doctrine, and that's kind of heavy, and it's difficult to understand, and, and there's a lot of hard words in it, and I don't know what they mean. And we feel that about Paul. He is the ex-Pharisee. He's the details man. He's about facts. He's about thinking. He's tough, even judgmental, we might say. And that's kind of our caricature of what Paul is like. But when you read this, you see something of his heart, don't you? You see that he isn't just that person. I mean, he, he is that person, but he has a heart. He feels the emotion, the relationship that he has with these new believers is really, really important. It's a relationship that's been formed as they've received the good news and as that relationship has been forged through the cauldron of persecution. Now, if ever you've been on a mission trip... You know the challenges and opportunities of that. And there's always this depth of relationship because you're on the page with each other, aren't you? You're sharing everything together. When stuff goes wrong, you know, normally it's a minibus that breaks down or something like that, or a flight that doesn't happen, or nothing to eat or something. You know, you forge those relationships in those moments. We've seen it in our nation and the tough moments where relationships are built more deeply, where there's a commonality, a common sense of purpose and belonging to one another. That's what Paul is experiencing. They, they plant that church and immediately there's severe persecution. People are thrown into prison. Everything is coming against them. And out of that is this love that he has for them. He is so concerned for them. They are like new shoots. The seed has been planted and it's just started to grow. And just as with a new shoot, it is vulnerable and it needs nurturing. And Paul wants to be there. He wants to be there with Timothy and Silas to, to take these new believers aside and say, look, you know what I said about Jesus? This is what I meant. This is how it works out in your life. This is how it's going to be for you in your workplace now. This is how you're going to have to behave as a slave in the Roman Empire because of your relationship with Jesus. This is what it means for your relationship with your children. This is what it says in Scripture and how we can unpack it and understand it. But he can't because he's not there. No one's there. It's just these really new little shoots growing up. And Paul's like, so concerned for them, so 
So desperate to see them. Now, I don't do gardening, and you know that already, but some people apparently do. When you have a new shoot, you put it in a safe place, like under one of those cloche things or in a greenhouse. Some of you are smiling at me, it's lovely. Um, because you know that if you just put it out in November in your garden, it's probably not going to last for very long. Like, but they were out in November. You know, these new little nurtured these little seeds that are just poking through, they're out in November. They're out in the midst of persecution and hardship and it's challenging and there's no one there. And Paul wants to be there. He's desperate to teach them and to shape them and to form that discipling process with them. And so he says something which really stands out and actually is somewhat unusual. He says, but we wanted to come to see you. And I love this next little bit because it's so human. Certainly I, Paul, did. <laughs> He's like, well, actually, I don't know about the others. I don't know if they felt quite the same as me. Or maybe it's because they're still in Berea and he hasn't actually managed to FaceTime them to find out, you know, but, but he's really keen. Anyway, we get that. And he says, but Satan stopped us. Satan stopped us. He doesn't say the persecution stopped us. He doesn't say there was pressure on us and that stopped us. He didn't say there wasn't a train that week to Thessalonica. He doesn't say I wasn't very well. And we know that he struggled with illness. Maybe there was a legal ban because it mentions something about that with regard to another leader called Jason in Acts 17, verse 19. Maybe he was already in Corinth and there was a scandal in the church there and that was the priority because we know that there were some things like that that he had to deal with. We don't know, and speculation achieves, frankly, nothing, but he says, Satan, stop me. Now that term, Satan, which just means accuser or adversary, is used 10 times only in the epistles. And so I just want you to look at a couple of them because it helps us to understand the context. So if you go back a little bit to 2 Corinthians and, uh, and chapter 2. And I'm going to just read from verse 10. It's a different context, but it, it just gives you an idea. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And if you turn over to chapter 12 of the same letter and verse 7, Paul is talking about himself here. And he talks about some visions that he's had of heaven. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And people understand that as being the illness that he struggled with for his whole life. And if you turn back to 1 Corinthians, next one back, and chapter 5, and verse 5, here's a, a different example again. We'll start from verse 4, actually. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. I'm not going to go into that. There are three different ways that he 
use it as this term, Satan, to talk about disruption within the work and the life of the church. What we need to remember is that this work that Paul is engaged in and the work that we are engaged in is a spiritual work. It's a spiritual work. We don't just do evangelism because it seems like a good idea and we are running out of ideas of other things to do. We don't focus hugely on discipleship just because, well, that's the kind of thing that churches do. This is a spiritual work. When we are out on the street sharing our faith, talking about Jesus, we are talking about the kingdom of light and inviting people to walk from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to change allegiance from Satan to Christ. This is not a small thing. This is a battle that we are involved in. When we are working with those little shoots coming through the ground in terms of discipleship, whether that's a a small group, a prayer triplet, a one-to-one mentoring, or any other way that we might share the gospel with people, we are working in a spiritual battle because otherwise those little shoots can be trodden on and destroyed, and that person can just drift off again. Now, Jesus told the story, didn't he, of the parable of the sower, that the word comes, and some people, it just sort of falls on the path and nothing happens. Other people, it grows up, or sorry, it's on the path, and it's there ready to grow, but the birds come and they grab it, and they steal it away. Others, it grows up a bit, but the thorns and the bushes come around it, and they choke it. You know, it's the same kind of thing. This is a spiritual battle, a spiritual strategy that we are involved in. You know, this last week, on Saturday, uh, a week ago. On Saturday, we had the Alpha Away Day. It was one of the best Alpha Away Days that's ever happened. Lots of encounters with the Holy Spirit and, and, and connection to Jesus through that. On Sunday, we had churches together across Skipton. Um, amazing celebration in Christ Church. It just felt like a, another shift towards our unity for the sake of the gospel. Um, today, we're out on the town sharing that Jesus, the Jesus, the reason for Christmas is the most important thing for us, as well as a number of other things. Phil has had the most rubbish week. Why? Because we're in a spiritual battle. Because these things are not just good activities that good churches put on. They are things that come against the powers of darkness. And Satan does everything to stop us to get in our way, to discourage us, to unsettle us. And this is exactly the experience that Paul had here. One of the things that we need to keep in mind is that we don't attribute too much to Satan. Not everything that happens to us, every time we have a cold, every time we have a sleepless night, every time our kids play up, is Satan getting in our path particularly. Stuff happens, doesn't it? But equally, we need to not attribute too little to him. We need to make sure that we look at stuff with spiritual eyes and spiritual wisdom and spiritual discernment so that we make right calls on things. And we know when we need to pray more. We know when we need to fast. Sorry. Um, We know when we need to stand strong against the enemy. In all of that, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. You can even say hallelujah or something constructive. You know, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Okay, I even told you what to say, right. (laughs) I may not move on from this point until there is some feedback. 
God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Okay, average. Anyway. (laughs) Paul then goes on to talk about something which reminds us of that truth. Because he talks about the end. Because he says in verse 19, by the way, I'm not spending so much time on all the other verses. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. You know, he's talking there about the winner of the games. The winner who receives a victor's crown, a laurel wreath, even a golden laurel wreath. We're not talking about, you know, like a Queen Elizabeth II crown. We're talking about this victor's crown, the winner in the, uh, in the games. And Paul, if you go back to 1 Corinthians and chapter 9... And verse 24 uses this image actually quite a number of times in his letters. He was a Roman. The Romans liked games, running races and crowns and things like that. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Paul has this wonderful perspective on his work. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel afraid to look any further in my diary than today. I mean, Jesus does say something about that, just worry about today, so that's a kind of a good reason. But sometimes it's just because there's so much ahead. But at other times, we don't look far enough ahead. We don't look to that last day when we'll see Jesus face to face. And Paul has that eschatological, that just means last things, perspective. He wants to be certain that he has not run in vain. He wants to think about how he's going to stand in the presence of Jesus when Jesus comes back again, which is a key um, theme through the books of Thessalonians. He says, you are my hope and my joy and my crown and my glory. Isn't that a lovely thing to say? That Paul knows that when he gets to the presence of Jesus, whether he gets there first or Jesus comes back first. When he stands in the presence of Jesus, he will have a crown, the crown of the people of Thessalonica. You know, it often used to amuse me and my friend when we were teenagers that we'd need to spend all our lives trying to make sure we got crowns only to throw them down at the feet of Jesus. It's the kind of thing that amuses teenagers, I guess. But oh, to have a crown that is worthy of placing at the feet of Jesus. Yeah? Oh, to feel that one day when we get to stand in his presence. And the more I think about that, the more excited I get. And I get to preach a whole sermon on that next week. Um, How beautiful to have a crown that is worthy of placing with worship at the feet of Jesus. 
And every time we speak his name, and every time we give a cup of water to the thirsty, and every time we feed the hungry, and every time that we allow a person to feel dignity in the name of Jesus, every time we love one another when it's not straightforward, every time we choose to forgive each other, even if we don't need to, every time we live with joy, in difficult and challenging circumstances, every time we allow the peace of Jesus to be our guide, our compass, every time we share something of what God has done for us with someone else who does not yet know him, every time we spend time mentoring someone else and discipling them to follow Jesus, every time we serve one another, yeah, that's the kind of crown, isn't it? That we want to lay at the feet of Jesus. And Paul says it to the Galatians and the Philippians and the Corinthians, who weren't his best example always. You are my crown. You are my crown. And he's so concerned for them about how they are. He's so worried about them that he sends Timothy to go and visit them. We don't really know why Timothy is able to go and Paul isn't. Maybe it's because Timothy's still at Berea and it's just down the road. Or maybe it's because Timothy's not got such a high profile and so it's easier for him to go. But he trusts Timothy. He says, please, just, just go. Go to this little church, will you? And let me know how they're doing. And he wants Timothy to go because he wants him to strengthen them and encourage them in their faith. Why? Because life was tough. He talks in verse 3. Well, let's go from verse 2. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. It's like, Timothy, please go to the church. Please encourage them. Please teach them. Remind them that trials and persecution are a normal part of following Jesus. We are no more than our master, and he faced trials and persecution. In this world, you will have trouble. But be of good heart, I have overcome the world. He says, encourage them. There will be pressure to give up. I'm going to ask you to be honest. Who's ever thought, actually, I think I might give up in my faith? Anyone? There's quite a few of you. You know, actually, stuff comes. And we think, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I want to tread this journey. It's hard. These things are not what I thought it would be like. I'm not sure if I want to persist in this. So there will be a pressure on you to give up and there will be a pressure on you to give in to the temptations that are around you. You know, this is not an easy life that we signed up to. This is the Jesus life and Jesus went via the cross. There will be a pressure to give in to temptation and that will be different for every single one of us in this room. But don't be surprised when trials come. Don't be surprised when temptations come against you. We need to encourage each other to stand firm. That's why the prayer triplets are such a great idea. 
Because when one is wavery, hopefully the other two aren't, they can encourage you. Stand firm. Come on, we've been here. Let's pray for you. Let's encourage you from the word of God to stand firm. Tough stuff is reality. It is reality. Paul talks in Ephesians about the need for the church to be rooted and established in love. We need to be rooted and established in Christ, in the love of Christ for us. That when the winds come, when the storms come, when the tempter comes, when the accuser comes against us, when maybe even persecution comes, and it comes in all different shapes and forms, and my friends, do not think that we will not face this. It doesn't take much. Somebody in government says, it's illegal now for people to meet in groups of more than 20. Bang, our Sunday worship is out immediately. So all it takes, a law, one law, and suddenly it can all change. It may be something to do with the workplace. It may be, even now, watching some of our, the people who want to stand for political office, and, and they're not allowed to because of a view that they hold. You know, it's all very subtle things. And we need to wake up and be firmly secure in our faith in Christ because tough stuff is a reality. And what we see here from Paul is a pastoral, parental, spiritually focused concern. He was their pastor, not for very long, but he still had that shepherd's heart towards them. We saw last week in chapter 2 and verse 7, he says this, But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but also our lives, because you had become so dear to us. In verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. He just has this passion for them. You know, we've been banging on about discipleship quite a lot over the last couple of years. Something needs to occur in our hearts before anything else. And that's a passion to see people grow in their faith, to know Jesus more, to know his word more, for them to keep going in Christ, for them to expect tests and trials, but grow through them, to grow in our character in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's how Paul was feeling about this church And he was so worried about them. But eventually, Timothy comes back. And Timothy brings them good news. Good news. And you can imagine Paul sitting there, worrying and worrying. I don't know how long it took. It's quite a long journey. There are no express trains. He was worried for them. Now, when I worry at home, my kids say to me, Will you stop worrying about us? You stop worrying about us. And I'm like, it's my job. I'm your mum. I'm supposed to worry about you. It was in the description I got on the day you were born that I would worry about you. Now, I know the whole spiritual thing that I should just pray about them and leave them in God's hands. I do try to do that also. But there is something, isn't there? This depth of concern that Paul has and this huge sense of relief when Timothy comes back with good news. He talks to Paul about their faith and their love. You know, it's so brilliant, isn't it, where we hear about the faith and love of people that we've known who started out with Christ. A couple of weeks ago now, we had um, a guy called Andy Brown come to our house for dinner. 
And um, I haven't seen Andy for about 28 years. Um, we worked together just for a very brief time um, for the Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship. I was a staff worker in the southeast, he was in the north. So we didn't have much to do with each other, but we had overlapped. He was a staff worker for Hull University when Mike was a student there. So we both knew him, but from completely different ways. And he came for dinner, and we just talked about people and stuff. As the person going in to encourage this Christian union in their faith and discipleship, to see a student who was at that point 19 going on with Jesus, taking leadership and serving within the church, how exciting is that? And we talked about Martin and Ruth Harrison because they were students at Hull University as well. And we talked about what they were doing with Jesus now. And it's just so brilliant, isn't it? When I was a staff worker, the president of Portsmouth Polytechnic Christian Union was a guy called Roger Hattam. And uh, just a few months ago, Mike went to Lesbos to the refugee camp with a woman called Sarah Hattam, who happens to be married to Roger Hattam. And they now live in Harrogate. And Roger is the chair of the Board of Trustees for Christians Against Poverty. You know, that just thrills my heart that this guy that I had a little bit of input into his life, a small, small amount, is going on with Jesus. You know, how many stories have you got like that? You know, it might be about yourself. It might be about somebody you know. It might be about people who are just keeping on walking with Jesus because... People fall away, and how encouraging and exciting it is. And isn't that what we want to see when people are continuing to go on with God? And he says that they have these shared, pleasant memories, and that's what we had. And there's this mutual longing to see each other. There's something heart-level about seeing each other. And he is encouraged by Timothy because he's heard that they're standing firm in the Lord. Those little sprouts are starting to grow and just become a bit stronger and more mature. And at the end here, he says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. We see this pastor's heart, the disciple maker's heart here, don't we? And I'm continually challenged by Paul's praying night and day for all the churches that he's involved in. Um, and one day I will be better. Um, and then he finishes, doesn't he, with this beautiful prayer. And I kind of feel like it's like um, an apostolic prayer. You know, Paul is a sent person. He is a church planter. He, he is equipped by God for the ministry and calling that he has. That, that's not everyone's role, and he has this prayer for them, which just feels like this apostolic prayer blessing, which um, is knowledgeable, it's informed, it's out of his daily prayer. He prays this for them. And in verse 11, he prays very specifically, Now may God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. It's really specific. I wonder how often we don't pray specifically enough. You know, it's the God bless Africa prayer. And we have no idea whether or not he's answered or not. We're kind of neither very excited or very disappointed. Because specific prayer 
leads to those two things, really, doesn't it? Either we get really excited because we're like, oh, wow, have you heard? We prayed about this and look, God's answered. Or we have that wrestling with, uh, well, nothing's happened yet. And then the waiting and then the, well, what, what, maybe God didn't hear, maybe didn't, God didn't answer. And there's a wrestling. But if we wrestle in the presence of God, we will still grow through those things. If we pray just a nebulous prayer, we won't grow in either respect. We probably won't even remember. So we have some specific prayers. Specifically pray about the encounters on the street today. Maybe if you're super brave, specifically pray that you will have an encounter with somebody on the street today and an opportunity to share something of Jesus. You do not have to share four spiritual laws, everything in the whole scriptures, something of Jesus. We can specifically pray for Phil tomorrow. We can specifically pray for Peter on Tuesday, can't we? And there will be a hundred other things that we can specifically pray for. Paul prays a specific prayer that is recorded for all time in this letter. And then he goes on and he prays a kind of a community prayer. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. This is church family again, isn't it? Who finds it easy to love everyone all the time? Anyone? Do you think that maybe it would be good if we prayed that we might have more love for each other? Do you think that would be a good prayer to pray? That maybe if we prayed that every single day, our relationships in our families and in our workplace and in our church and into our community might be changed. If we were to pray every day that the Lord would make our love increase and overflow for each other, oh, and for everyone else. Didn't that be a good prayer? You know, I mean, Jesus says, doesn't he, love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So that's a good prayer to, for us to be praying, isn't it? That God would make our love increase. And then finally, he prays a kind of eschatological prayer. Now you know what that means, don't you? Because I've already told you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is a prayer rooted in the future. Now, the disciples at this point still really believed in the imminent return of Jesus. They thought that when Jesus used the word soon, he meant soon. You know, like they actually believed that. They thought, Jesus is coming back. That gave them a perspective that we have often lost. He prayed for them that they would be blameless and holy when Jesus comes again. I don't know about you. There are some days and some moments in some days when if I was really honest, I really wouldn't want Jesus to come back right at that point. Any of the rest of you feel like that ever? There were other days when I think, actually, now wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> On balance. He prays that they will be blameless and holy. I mean, that's a huge prayer, isn't it? But he has this perspective that Jesus is coming and that we should live in the light of his coming 
And if we live in the light of his coming, then everything about who we are and how we behave will be different. He prays that for them. I don't know how we feel about Jesus coming again. We're going to talk about that next week. But when I look around the world right now, the chaos and the fake truth and the lies and our celebrity culture and it's not a political comment on anything. I just think, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Because there's got to be hope that there's something beyond this, hasn't there? Hope that we have a saviour who will come back and there will be an end to this madness. And Paul prays for them. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, pour out your Spirit, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, pour out your Spirit on us today.